1 Timothy chapter 5. We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Timothy. Correct doctrine meets faith. When we have the doctrine right, our life reflects it. And so as we've been going through 1 Timothy, I was uh, actually planning and excited to preach through 1 Timothy 4 today. Um, I thought that Jordan last week was going to preach on one verse. And then he came to me and he said, I want to do the whole chapter of chapter 4. And uh, he did an amazing job taking us through what 1 Timothy chapter 4 is. So I get to fast forward a week in our study. And so we're going to jump into chapter 5 just to kind of recap where we're at. Now we understand that Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy. And as he's writing this letter to Timothy, uh, Timothy is leading the church in Ephesus, and there are all sorts of headaches he's having to deal with. Uh, some divisions in the church from among some leaders who are teaching a false doctrine, one that is dividing the church. Timothy says, you know it's a false doctrine because of the divisions that are present within the church. So he goes to correct some of those divisions. But really what he does, instead of calling out all the details, instead he starts laying out what a correct, godly church leader should look like. This is what the church should be, what it should look like, how it should act. And so chapter 1, it introduces some of those doctrines and those heresies. Chapter 2, we get into how the church should be praying and specifically how, how we as a church should function. It, it nails a little bit uh, down on, on how women are to worship in a service. And, and then in chapter 3, we, we talk about how some of the godly men should serve as deacons and as elders. And, and there's some requirements and, and character things that need to be ironed out. Last week, Jordan talked in chapter 4, kind of a reintroduction to these, these false doctrines and, and how we shouldn't pattern ourselves at the beginning and, and then how we should instruct others and how we should live as chapter 4 goes on. And, and then in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he gets into some increasing levels of accountability. And so we're going to be reading in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, a sermon entitled, Caring for Widows. Caring for widows. Now, before we delve into this, the first two verses are actually going to be not about widows at all, but about uh, older and younger men and older and younger women in the church. And then we're going to dive into this widow ministry that the church of Ephesus had. And I, I want you to know this morning that, that while they have the category of widow and there's a lot of details given, this phrase widow is best applied in our modern times as helping those who are in need. So I want to lay a little bit of groundwork for what a widow was like in the first century. It didn't just mean someone who had lost their husband, and that was devastating enough. This is someone who had lost their husband, and because of the, the structure of the family and the society, they had lost most likely their home, most likely any source of income they had whatsoever. They had become someone who had no means to provide for themselves. They were completely and totally helpless in this first century society. There are two categories of people that the Bible over and over and over again says the, the believers in God should help and assist. They are widows and orphans. Those who have lost their husbands and therefore in this culture have lost all means of, of uh, providing for themselves. And those who have lost their fathers and their parents and, and are homeless and are floating around and trying to, to make do with what they can scrounge up. 
Really, when you read about caring for widows and when you read about caring for orphans in Scripture, you ought to immediately tell yourself what God is telling us as a church to do is care for people who are unable to care for themselves. We ought to be be thinking about those in need and reaching out to them. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're going to begin with, with kind of a progressive level of honor, if you will. This morning, we're going to look at the first couple of verses, and it doesn't use the word honor, but there's a, an honoring that's implied in there, and we'll look at those verses. Then when it says to care for widows, it says we ought to honor widows. And then later on in chapter 5, it's going to talk about elders, and it's going to say they're worthy of double honor. So you go from assuming honor in the first couple of verses to honoring in the rest of uh, the first half of chapter 5, and then the second half of chapter 5, there's double honor, and then the beginning in chapter 6 is talking about masters of bond servants and how they receive all honor. So you see this increasing level of honor that is given from Timothy, to, or from Paul to Timothy about individuals in the church and how we're to interact with these individuals. So this morning, I want to dive into the first two verses that don't hit on widows, but hit on a very important level of honor within the church. So let's read 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2 together. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. As Paul writes to Timothy, he begins his honor section by addressing older men in the church, younger men in the church, older women in the church, and younger women in the church. The way this verse is laid out, it says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Those two commands, do not rebuke and encourage, the way the Greek is written and laid out are implied for all four categories of people. So you could fill in the gaps there and say, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Do not rebuke a younger man, but encourage him as you would a brother. Do not rebuke an older woman, but encourage her as you would a mother. Do not rebuke a younger woman, but encourage her as a sister in all purity. Which leads me to the question, who do we get to rebuke? <laughs> right? Do not rebuke someone older than you who's male or younger than you who's male. Do not rebuke someone older than you who's female or younger than you who's female. So here's what I think, if we're taking this as literal as we can, you can find someone your exact age and give all the rebuke you want. So raise your hand in here if you are 38 years old. I don't get to rebuke anybody according to these verses. This is depressing, right? Of course, the, the implication here is not never give a correction. Instead, it's... It's, again, about the character of the person giving the rebuke. This word rebuke implies more than just correction. It, it often is used in the connotation of physical violence. <laughs> it's like, do not be angry and hasty and, and vengeful in your correction. In other words, be careful how you rebuke somebody. When you approach an older man in the church, approach him as you would your own father someone you care deeply about. That doesn't mean there's not correction to be had, but that means you need to be very cautious with how you approach that individual. If you approach a younger man in the church, be careful not to crush his spirit. Understand that there's going to be times that correction is needed, but, but we need to approach him as you would a brother. Now, honestly, I treat a brother a little bit differently than I do a father. I have a lot more fear of my dad than I did of my brother, 
But there is a family love that is connected with that correction. Older women approach them as you would a mother. Younger women and sisters in all purity, there's this idea of correction and rebuke being done in the family unit. Not out of anger or spite or hate, but out of love. The illustration I read in one of the commentaries was, was rebuke using either a sword or a scalpel. Both are instruments meant to cut. Both are instruments meant to to slice. But one of them is meant to do damage and kill, and one of them is meant to heal. There are times that rebuke is necessary, times that we have to stand up and say, this is what God's word says. And Paul, of all people, understands there are times that you have to speak and stand on truth, sometimes harshly. Paul has already said once in this letter that there are people who need to be turned over to the devil. There are times for harsh words. But it should begin with a a family atmosphere within the church. How you deal with each other is one of encouragement, not anger and hate. So the first level of honor is not mentioned honor, but it's implied here. Honor each other as you would family. Love each other as you would family. And so our first note that we can write down, uh, which we're, we're skipping ahead here, is to honor widows who are truly widows. I'm missing a verse in there, um, but verse 3 states that we ought to honor widows who are truly widows. There it is, verse 3. I do have it up there. Honor widows who are truly widows. Here in a couple of verses, he's going to tell us how to honor these women, and he transitions now to this honor language, right? Here is someone you are to honor. Those who are without need or or without help and are in need, you are to give honor. Here in verse 5, in just a moment, Paul's going to tell us exactly how to honor them, but he begins with some instructions in verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. The first instruction he has for widows is If they have family to care for them, the family should care. This is a theme all throughout the Bible, that it is the family unit who is responsible to take care of each other. The family unit who is ultimately responsible to take care of each other. God has given us a church, a wonderful body of believers, a body of Christ that we can love and invest in each other. But over and over and over, the Bible teaches us that the church is not the ultimate source of family, but the household, the family unit, is the perfect and ultimate source of family. Just yesterday, my my girls were at a dance recital. Review is what they call it on a, a year that's not quite as big, but It was a big deal to me, and as we're walking through the school where they're holding it, there was a a sign above one of the doors that said, education is a community activity. And I thought, you know, it takes a lot of people to invest in the education of children. And, And the schools are an important part of how our children are being invested in. On it, it listed uh, not only school, but it listed church right there in a public school wall. The church ought to be investing in our children. And I thought, that's exactly right. The church should have more of an investment in our children, even than the school system does. And the last thing it listed on there was the family, the family. And it struck me how, whether they were trying to be biblical or not, 
in a public school system, they nailed how Scripture would to teach how our children are to be invested. The community, sure, we ought to be a community that cares about our kids. The church, you better believe, we ought to be a church that invests in our children. But moms and dads and family units, you're the ones who are investing. Same goes not only for our children, but for for our mothers and grandmothers, for the widows in our family, for those who are, are without help and assistance and need. We ought to, as a family, be invested And so the first point of application as we read 1 Timothy chapter 5 is how do you care about your own household? How do you care about the people who live in your own house? Not just in your own house, but in your own family lineage. Your parents and your children. Your grandparents and your grandchildren. How are you invested in those who are a part of your family? But we're going to see a little later on in chapter 5, some of these women were taking serious advantage of the hospitality of the church. They were abusing their position of need. And Paul says, listen, you have people to take care of you when there's others who don't. If you as a family can invest in your own family, the church is free to help those who are without a family. Verse 5, he starts talking about who true widows are. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. So who is a true widow? It's one who is truly in need, left all alone. By the way, if if we're going to apply this to the 21st century, then we're not just going to say women who have lost their husbands or husbands who have lost their wives. This is going to be all those in need applied to this passage. You want to know who a true widow is in our 21st century context? According to 1 Timothy 5, it's those who are left all alone. Those who don't have someone checking in on them. Those who are, are struggling and don't have the help that they need. In this case, the, the widows are ones who, left on their own, have prayerfully and hopefully set their hope on God, not on others, and they continue in supplications and prayers day and night. This requirement for being a true widow is someone who follows after God. Verse 6 says, But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. There were some women in this church, widows in this church, who took advantage of the care and the the hospitality of the church of Ephesus. It says they were self-indulgent. And the selfish individual who is looking to take advantage of those in need says is dead even while they live. There's more on the self-indulgent widows here in just a moment. He's going to go into more detail and and more application on how we can be careful. Verse 7 says, Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. And verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This verse really is, is a scary one to think about. Anytime you hear the Bible say it's worse than an unbeliever, realize there's a lot of danger in what the command is here. Verse 7, Paul says, Make sure everybody knows they're to be caring for their own family because if they don't, they are worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers take care of mama. (laughs) Even unbelievers care for those in need. We talked this morning about how even a secular world has great programs to help our community 
And I'm very thankful for some of the ways that even lost people are invested in Robinson, Illinois and Crawford County to help share needs. Even those who, who aren't doing things with a godly motive know how to take care of those in need. And as a believer in Christ, to neglect our own family and those who are in need within our family is worse than an unbeliever. It says before that that these people have denied the faith. The very basis of Christianity is caring for those who cannot carry, care for themselves. Think about the very basic of the, the basics of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, while we could not do anything on our own, while we were still sinners, Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. The basis of the Christian faith is there's a people, an entire humanity who cannot care and save themselves but God, who is rich in mercy, even while we were still sinners and dead in our trespasses and sins, even then Christ died and cared for us. A denial to care for those in your family who need your care is a denial of the basics of the gospel itself. Verse 9, he transitions to a formal time of widow ministry. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Now, there's a, a quick line here that's important for us to make between verses 8 and 9, and we see it in this word enrolled. It seems like the church in Ephesus had an official widow ministry. Now, that's not a command that every church needs to have an official widow ministry, but that also doesn't mean a church can't have an official widow ministry. This seems like there was an enrollment of women in the church who were in need as widows, and the church could provide for. And so Paul is giving some requirements of these widows. He gives three basic requirements for these women to serve in this ministry. It needs to also be noted that this enrollment was not just providing for the needs of these widows. It seems like these widows enrolled were actually doing ministry. These were, were women serving in the church in a very unique and special way that, that maybe only these women could. So it was this two-way street of care for the widows and the widows serving the church. These widows seem to have made a commitment never to remarry to keep themselves free to serve the church in Ephesus. So Paul says, let me give you three requirements, two of them right here in verse 9. One, let her be not less than 60 years of age. In other words, don't enroll extremely young widows in this program. Why? Why can't a, say, a 30-year-old widow be enrolled in this program? Well, Paul, just like he wants to make the qualifications of, of men leaders in the church, deacons and elders, to be mature and, and responsible and proven, these are women who have lived lives and proven themselves faithful. They're not immature. They're, they're not faced with the temptations that some of the older women ha have overcome. And they have ex uh, experienced these older widows that younger widows do not. Secondly, he says that a widow should be, have been the wife of one husband. By the way, this is the exact phrase, just reversed, that we talked about, husband of one wife. Literally, they just changed the genders. There's a lot we can delve into here, but, but what we know this cannot mean is it can't mean that a woman has never remarried since becoming a widow. Because Paul here in just a few minutes is going to say, if you're young, remarry. You give yourself a chance to prove yourself 
as a, a family individual. So what I think that Paul is saying is that this widow must have someone who has the characteristic of a wife who is faithful and devoted to her husband while he was alive. A real family woman. And then the third commitment in verse 10. Having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children and has shown hospitality and washed the feet of the saints and cared for the afflicted and devoted herself to every good work. The third requirement is that this woman, these widows, have a reputation for good works. They're not idle or lazy. They're serving, they're working, and they're committed to the ministry that God has placed before them. He gives four examples of good works, all packaged under this third requirement. He says, one, that she's brought up her children. She's raised her children faithfully. That she's a, a woman who cares about her family. Secondly, he says that she's shown hospitality. Her door is open to those in need. She cares about those who are without. She's serving even in her time of needing to be served. Third, it says she washed the feet of the saints. That's a humility that she shows, doing the most, most uh, humiliating task that could have been done. She was willing to give up her own pride for others. And fourth, she's cared for the afflicted, those who have been persecuted or beat down. She cares for those who cannot care for themselves. Ironically, the widows on this list are the ones in the most need. But in order to be enrolled in the widow ministry at Ephesus, they have to be giving, not taking. They have to be meeting needs, not expecting needs to be met. This is a reminder from chapter 3, both for men and women in the church, that godly character is required for ministry. It's not enough that you just serve. You serve with a heart that follows after God's standards. Your entire life of service must be wrapped in the fact that you are faithful to be who God has called you to be. Paul continues talking about the bad character of some of these women in verse 11 through 13. Refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. In verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. Paul's warning is that some of these younger widows, particularly I think he's getting at younger in the faith, immature in their faith, tend to be tempted in several ways. One, rightly so, they desire to remarry. And that makes sense. Paul's going to go on in just a moment to say they should remarry. If they're able to, to remarry and have a family life, that's a temptation that's going to pull them away from their commitment to serve as a single woman. Secondly, he says there's a temptation to abandon their commitment. Serving is mundane and boring and hard. Sometimes it's lonely and you're doing it by yourself. It takes a strong, mature woman or man, but in this case, a strong, mature woman to say, I'm going to keep my commitment even when I feel like I'm alone and nobody else is doing it with me. The third temptation in verse 13 is that they, they are tempted to be idle or lazy and gossips and busybodies. And instead of serving the church, they just want to know what's going on in the church. Instead of, instead of investing in the body of Christ, they're finding out all they can and sharing with others what they know. 
getting the juicy details and going from house to house. These younger women, particularly younger in the faith, are more concerned with what they can get than what they can give. And so Paul commands these younger widows in verse 14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. He says younger women should marry or remarry in order to prove they have the high character required in verses 9 and 10. Give them a chance to faithfully serve. He closes out in verses 15 and 16. Some have already strayed after Satan. They're lumped in with the men in chapter 1 who have strayed and caused division. And so verse 16, if any woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Our two main points of application as we read about serving and the widows this morning are, one, if you have family who is in need, take it on your shoulders to care for those family members. Those who, who need your love and attention and support, you are called to faithfully serve and give to them what they need. I think to piggyback on that application, it's a reminder that the church is not to be serving for the sake of serving, but serve so that the body of Christ can be built up. There is no way that the leadership of this church can care and serve for every person in our church community. I love each of you dearly and care for you immensely, but there's no way one man can truly invest in the lives of a hundred different people in a church. Church, the first application is to be the church, to care for those who are in need, not to wait for the church to pick up a ministry and do it. Not to wait for a program that says, here's how we serve, but find those who are in need and get plugged in and serve, especially within your own household. The second application is, is in your service, do so with the highest character. Do so in such a way that, that there's no one who can slander your good works. Will you be perfect? You will not. But can you be faithful? hope that you will be. These older women, these older widows are someone to look up to. Men and women both ought to see the faithfulness of these women and long for and yearn for the faithfulness of these widows. My hope and my prayer is that we would be a church with such high character and high standards that in our service we are serving for good. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you've taught us how to care for others. Lord, we thank you for these faithful women in chapter 5 to remind us how we are to serve. Lord, we're thankful for the unfaithful ones as well because it shows us where we ourselves struggle. Father, we pray that we would serve others and not wait for a program or wait for a, a church function, that we would be faithful to serve. And in doing so, Lord, let us do it in a way that honors you with high character, caring more about others than about ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen.